weeks uh, in the book, and my prayer, the prayer of the elders have been that this has been an encouraging series for us to work through. We're going to start, uh, when, we, when we finish up this series, we're going to do a few weeks just meditating on the person and work of Christ leading up to Easter Sunday, and then when we come out of Easter Sunday, we're going to work, uh, begin to work through the book of Ruth. Uh, together, just by way of kind of letting you know the direction that we're going toward. But First Timothy chapter 6 is where we find ourselves this morning, and we're going to look at uh, about two verses, one and a half verses this morning. And, um, and just again, by way of reminder, I try to do this every week. This is an ecclesiastical letter. This is a letter that was written to the church of Ephesus. It was written to, to the pastor, Timothy, and to the, the elders of the church of Ephesus with the understanding that this would be read to the church when the church would gather uh, together. And so we see instructions, and, and really, uh, for a new church plant like Deer Park Fellowship, this is a good foundational book for us to have worked through uh, together. And so again, I pl- pray that it's been encouraging. But if you have your Bibles, look with me this verse 1 and then the first part of verse 2. I'm going to read it, then I'm going to pray, and then we've got a lot of ground to cover, and so I'm going to jump right in. Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he wrote these words to the church of Ephesus, particularly to the elders there. He says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Verse 2, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they're brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel of grace. We thank you, God, for your word here, God, that your spirit wrote through human authors, that your spirit not only wrote but has kept pure, has, has, uh, has sustained your word so that we, so many years later, could sit and open it and know that the word is living and active, God. It's not just something that was written to this church a long time ago and has no relevance for us. It's something that's written that the Holy Spirit can apply to us now. And so help us to see what it is that we need to work through and apply, God. Use your word to shape us and mold us. We're completely and utterly dependent upon your spirit for that work to happen. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the church of Ephesus must have been a place where slaves and their masters worship together. In my opinion, this is the only way that these instructions here, these, these first couple of verses, it's the only way that these first couple of verses really make sense. Both slave and master would have gathered together and, and, and together would have been called Ephesus, the church of Ephesus. They would have gathered together and they would have heard this letter as brothers, these instructions here from, from the Apostle Paul. And it's estimated that half of the population of the Roman Empire at the time of this letter, over half of the population or at least half of the population would have been considered uh, slaves, And certainly the existence of these first couple of verses here in chapter uh, 6, they tell us something 
about the gospel of Jesus Christ, something that we all know or that we all should know. And Paul summarizes it this way in Galatians chapter 3. He said, there's neither Jew nor Greek. And right, our, our confession of sin or our assurance of pardon kind of hinted at this, right, this letter to, to Ephesus here. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 to 29. And that the gospel of Jesus Christ has brought reconciliation. Right? That's the, the, the good news of the gospel there. For us, first, reconciliation, us to God, and then it made us reconciled to one another. Right? In Christ, all people, regardless of nationality, regardless of sin, are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise, right? And we should praise God for that. That should encourage us as a church, right? That's what we know as Christians from the sweeping testimony of Scripture. Now, what is obvious or what's glaringly obvious in this passage is that we don't see Paul instructing the master to free the individual in slavery, right? And as I just read that passage, maybe that's where your mind goes as you're looking at this passage, right? We don't see that there. And many critics of Christianity have pointed things like that out, right? And if we stare at this passage, and if we think about it for a little while, that may unsettle us. That may unsettle us. Why wouldn't Paul include that specific instruction in a letter during a time where 50% of the the population was composed of slaves? That's a legitimate question. That's a legitimate question if you're asking it this morning. And that word that the ESV, which is the translation that I just read out of, that word that the ESV translates as bondservant, is the word doulos, and, and it means slave, and it's strengthened by the phrase all, what our text says, all who are under a yoke, right? Together, those two, those, that phrase and that word together means property of another, the property of another. So why is it that this makes us uncomfortable? Not just for, not just someone being referred to as property, but at what Paul omits here in these two verses. And as I've sat and I've wrestled and I've thought about this in my own heart, there are a few reasons why a passage like this, if if we're asking that question, there are a few reasons why a passage like this can make us unsettled. First, and what should be obvious as Christians, we know that all people are created in the image of God, right? All people are created in the image of God. Us being created in God's image, it bestows on us. If you've wondered why it is that humans have value and dignity and they're unique, The reason is because God created us in his image, right? That's what gives us value. That's what gives us dignity. That's what gives us worth. It's not what is inside of us, right? It's that we were created by God, and the word tells us we were created in his image. So to hear of someone being treated as property, it should unsettle us, right? It should make us angry, legitimately so. Which leads to, secondly, we want wrongs to be righted, don't we? We want wrongs to be righted. And and this is a good desire. This is a noble desire. This is a part of imaging God. We want that which has been twisted to be set right. This is why we should long 
for the second advent of Christ. When God in Christ Jesus definitively makes everything new, it's the undoing of the curse. But thirdly, and this is where we get tripped up, this is where we get tripped up. We're way more pragmatic than we think. And our dealing with various injustices almost always, almost always fails to address root issues and in the long run causes more harm than good. And and I want to flesh out this third piece a bit more, and I want to do that by taking us to another passage in the New Testament where Paul writes to Philemon, which is the right way to say Philemon, but he writes to Philemon regarding his escaped slave Onesimus. Okay, so Philemon chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it, I think, yeah, we've got it up on the screen, verses 15 and 16. It says, for this perhaps is why he, okay, speaking of Onesimus, was parted, and again, he's writing to Philemon here, the slave owner, was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever. Right, no longer is a bondservant, which is the same word there, slave, that we see in our text, but more than a bondservant, more than a slave, is a beloved brother especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? If you're familiar with the book of Philemon, there's a man named, again, Onesimus there who escaped uh, slavery, and and he escaped from a man named Philemon. And Philemon was a Christian who was influenced pretty heavily by the Apostle Paul, and he was indebted to Paul, according to that book. He was indebted to the Apostle Paul. And somewhere along the way, Onesimus became a Christian. It doesn't seem that he was a Christian when he first escaped, but he, he became a Christian, and he found his way to the Apostle Paul, and he becomes an immensely helpful companion to the Apostle Paul. But what does Paul do after Onesimus comes to him? Paul sends him back, and he sends him back with this letter. And I would encourage you to read the entirety of that letter because I'm only giving you a snippet here. But Paul sending him back to his master, that isn't a pragmatic approach, right? It's not the obvious way to deal with an issue like slavery, right? And as I read this and as I read 1 Timothy 6, I think in my, my own ignorant flesh, I think I wouldn't have done it that way. I wouldn't have done it that way. Right? And, and, and in my thinking of that, I, I end up coming face-to-face with my pride because I realize that deep down there's this, there's this dark, sinister thought that's as old as the Garden of Eden that in me says, I know better than God. Right? It, it's no secret that we live in a day and age when, when many people are concerned about injustice. And phrases like injustice, phrases like justice, phrases like inequality have been used so much by so many people that the words themselves have become kind of empty cliches and in a way have become stumbling blocks to having any sort of productive dialogue whatsoever. There's so many different definitions. There's so many different approaches to this issue of injustice. Yet the question that we as Christians are obligated to ask is what approach honors God? That's the question that we're obligated to ask. What approach honors God? Because that's the main concern in our text this morning. That's the main concern in our text this morning. It's found in the so that part of verse 1, if you look back with me quickly. Paul says, so that the name of God 
and the teaching may not be reviled. That the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed is another is a way that another translation puts it, and I think it's better put that way. This is the Holy Spirit's concern as he inspired Paul to write these instructions to a church which had as its members both slaves and masters. Our problem in talking about injustice going on in society is that we have the wrong starting point. We have the wrong starting point. We start with people. We start with people. Or we start with the problem. The starting point isn't people in this passage. The starting point isn't slavery. It isn't injustice. It isn't the philosophies of man. The starting point is God. The starting point is God. The starting point is always God. It's always God. The concern is about His honor, about God's honor, His glory, and His gospel. So we begin with the name of our triune God and his gospel. And if you're taking notes, you can jot this down. God and his gospel really do dismantle injustice over time. God and his gospel really do dismantle injustice over time. If I can revisit that pragmatic point that I made just a moment ago, sadly, and this is true of all of us at some point, we doubt the power of God and his gospel. Right, this side of eternity, because we're still wrestling with our own sin nature, we still can end up having those, those deep-seated thoughts that we know better than God does. We tend to doubt the power of God and his gospel. And the evidence for that, if, 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 if we're saying, no, I don't think that that's it, right? the evidence for that in us is found in our perpetual outrage, in our disunity that we see in our churches and our society as it relates to issues of justice even today. Last Sunday, I spoke of how sin does a leavening work. And, and the scripture in Galatians speaks of sin and the leavening work that it does. That was the passage that I pointed out. But did you know that the kingdom of God is also described in this way? The kingdom of God, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus, in one of his parables, he says this. He, Jesus, told them another parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened, how God describes the kingdom. The the kingdom of God leavening here on earth really is happening. It really is happening. And it really is the thing that works out all uh, all of the sin, all of the things that are contrary to the propagation of God's kingdom, all the things that are anti-Christ, all the things that are anti-gospel, because that's what the kingdom of God does when it expands. That is just what the kingdom of God does when it expands. That is its natural outworking, yet we doubt this. We doubt this, and instead we tend to adopt pragmatic measures and mantras that have a starting point other than God to solve justice issues of the day, and it never leads to peace. It never leads to peace, right? And it's, it's because the only thing that makes people put down their weapons, the only thing that causes uh, us to see each other as creating the image of God, the only thing that brings peace is the gospel of peace. It's the gospel of peace. Right? But that seems and feels too ethereal for us. But the gospel that transforms the slave and master relationship 
is the gospel that transforms everything. Everything. And I think our unsettledness in a passage like this is evidence of how we tend to think in ways that are more expedient and conducive to our own timetables and our own agendas. But think again of how the gospel was already transforming the relationships in the church of Ephesus. Not just Jew and Gentile relationships, but slave and masters. Again, they were worshiping together. They were worshiping together. That's a leavening work. That's the kingdom of God leavening there. That's the power of the gospel. Paul calls them in our text brothers. He calls them brothers. They're viewed as being a part of the same family. We see that both in the Philemon passage I read you and in this one in, in, in 1 Timothy. In fact, Paul, he gets at the heart of the issue in Philemon when he sends Onesimus back to Philemon, the non-pragmatic thing to do, yet he says to Philemon, receive him as a what? A brother. Receive him as a brother. He's getting to the heart of the matter. A a, a church that's chiefly concerned about the reputation of God, a church that's chiefly concerned about the propagation of the gospel is a church that will transform the culture and that will always get to the heart of the matter. And listen, some of you may think I'm foolish, but your pastor really does believe God is going to, given enough time, transform culture, transform our society, because I believe that his kingdom, to to my very core, I believe that his kingdom is going to expand all over the world, and that, that entire nations are going to be brought to submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. They're going to be brought to obedience, which is a part of the great commission that I believe really will be successful. I don't think this world's going to hell in a handbasket. I don't. Not a world in which Christ came to seek and save the lost. Not a world in which Christ died. Not a world in which Christ victoriously and bodily resurrected in. Not, not that kind of world. No, that world gets redeemed. That world gets redeemed. So this morning, if you look around in our society, as I do, and you don't like what you see, injustice, right? And, and, and again, think to the, the context of, the, of these, these instructions being written. They're looking around seeing 50% of the population in slavery. We need to take a deep breath. If, if, that, if that is bothering you, and I'm preaching to myself here this morning, we need to take a step back and take a deep breath and use our concern, use our care, and we need to ask a few questions. First, how concerned am I that God's name be honored and reverenced? Right, does my approach toward injustice reverence the name of God? Secondly, how committed am I to seeing the gospel as the way to transform society? Am I sending that message clearly or am I sending a murky message? Third, do I see people as created in the image of God, which means do I see them made up of body and soul, which means do I chiefly care about their eternity? Do I care about the eternity of these precious souls created in God's image? And if so, what am I doing about that? The gospel is the only sustainable root for peace. It's the only sustainable root for peace. Any other approach is in God's common grace, temporal at best. 
It's temporal at best. And think of how Paul uses that word brothers again in this passage. What did the gospel do for us? What did the gospel do for us? Right? The Bible says that we were all once enemies of God. Right? Romans chapter 5, verse 10. Right? We, we weren't born neutral. Right? We, weren't, we weren't weighing the options of, man, this Christian thing sounds great, but you know, maybe I want to dabble in sin or whatever. Our, our natural disposition was one at which we were at odds with God, enemies of God. We were God's opposition because we we were born in sin. We were born with a sin nature. And God being perfect in holiness, perfect in justice, would have been completely right to put us under his wrath and hell for all eternity. He would have been completely right to do that. In fact, that's what we all deserve. Well, what does that verse say? What does Romans 5, chapter 10, verse 11 say? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. God reconciled His enemies, us, to Himself. We were reconciled by the death of Jesus. We are saved by by the resurrected life. Of Jesus. And I'm going to talk about this in a few weeks, but Paul says also in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, it says, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, not some things, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Right? Christ reconciled all things on earth and in heaven, and get this, he made peace, past tense, he made peace. Peace by the blood of his cross. Peace is accomplished. Peace through the gospel is spreading. Peace finds its yes and amen in Christ Jesus, right? If reconciliation is what we're concerned about, if peace is what we're concerned about, we have to look to the cross of Christ. That's where we go. We must, treat, we must trust that the gospel is going to do its leavening work in the hearts of man as we faithfully promote the gospel. Only the gospel changes hearts. And if the gospel changes the hearts of man, and if man is what constitutes a society, then we need to trust in the fact that God will transform his society by that gospel of peace. This is why Christians should be optimistic. No matter what we see going on in society, I think Christians should be the most optimistic, hopeful, joyful people on the planet. Genuinely optimistic. And we practically demonstrate our optimism by our submission and commitment to the gospel into God's methods for heralding it. God made peace with us. He made peace with us through the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. God provided peace amongst men through the sacrifice of Christ. God and his gospel really do dismantle injustice over time. Really do dismantle injustice over time. All right, we sing at Christmas time. He comes to make his blessings flow far as what? The curse is found. Right, the blessings that God brings in Christ Jesus will reach as far as the curse has, which means it's going to touch everything. Secondly, God and his gospel grant us contentment and purpose no matter our station in life. God and his gospel grant us contentment and purpose no matter our station in life. It's not lost on me that Paul's actually addressing slaves in this passage. Right? Slaves who are members of the church of Ephesus. He doesn't mention injustice. 
He isn't giving instructions to masters. He's speaking to slaves as brothers in Christ, as fellow image bearers. And his concern is for their soul. His concern is that the slaves at Ephesus be be concerned about the glory of God and the reputation of Christ, no matter what their situation is. Again, you can look back. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants, slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching, the doctrines, may not be reviled, may not be blasphemed. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they're brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. With the name of God and his gospel are your concern. When that's your main concern, it does something good to your soul. It does something good to your soul. And in turn, you're freed up to, to love and to serve others regardless of your station in life because you see your position through the lens of eternity. You see your position through this overwhelming lens of gratitude that you have for all that God has accomplished and done for you in Jesus. The Apostle Peter gets at this same thing when he gives instructions to slaves. If you want to flip over to 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, Servants, slaves, in chapter 2, starting with verse 18, I think we've got, yeah, got it up here. Be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongly. For what credit is it if when you're beaten for your faults you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. These are hard words. These are hard words. For to, to this you were called, because Christ also, and here he turns it to Christ, Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Quote, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth? Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return? When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, trusted in the justice of God here, who himself bore our sins in his own body, on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is a strange way to comfort the afflicted, isn't it? At least according to our standards, it's a strange way to comfort the afflicted. But here we have Peter comforting these Christians in telling them that, that their suffering, as they suffer well, that it's commended by God. It's, it's, it's commendable by God. It's seen by God. And Peter encourages them. He encourages their souls by recalling for them the sufferings of Christ. All right, and this is a good point of meditation for us, that we could get all sorts of devotional value from, from meditating on Christ and his sufferings. But Christ the only righteous man to ever live, the only true victim in every sense of the word. He suffered. He persevered in that suffering to the glory of God and for the benefit of God's church. His suffering was redemptive. It, It had a cosmic purpose. It wasn't for nothing. His stripes, his wounds, his broken body and spilled blood, they were healing. To honor God in your affliction, to be concerned with exalting the triune God no matter your station in life, is to be identified with Christ Jesus. And he's with you in that. It's a part of our union with him. And what Paul is impressing on these dear saints at Ephesus who were slaves, and what Peter is impressing on them, it doesn't just magnify God, and it, it does their own souls good. 
And, and, and I, I've mentioned that already, but we don't, we don't need to miss that this morning. Right? You show me somebody that's concerned about magnifying the Lord in every area of life, no matter the circumstance, and I will show you a happy, joyful person. Because that person has learned that circumstances do not produce inner peace. Right? Circumstances do not produce inner peace. And that isn't to downplay real, grueling suffering. Peter didn't downplay suffering. He didn't downplay suffering. In fact, Peter and Paul suffered a lot. They suffered a lot, more than most of us in this room, by God's grace, will ever know. And what I'm saying doesn't minimize suffering, but we need to peek behind the curtain of our suffering, and we need to see things. We need to see things like the enemy, the devil. He wants to use suffering and evil, not just to rob you of your physical life, but he also wants to destroy your soul. Right? He wants to steal your joy in Christ. And these words that Paul and Peter commend guard the souls of these dear saints from the thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Right? These Ephesian brothers and sisters heard a message, right? and the people that Peter was writing to as well, right? that, that both of these brothers labored to apply in their own lives. What they're commending here isn't theoretical. It's not theoretical. Paul says this about himself elsewhere. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, Philippians chapter 4, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And I don't know if you know much about the Apostle Paul's testimony, but it is rough, right? It's rough. He says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. All right, Paul learned the secret of contentment. And what that word content means is satisfaction. All right, the opposite of content is discontentment. Discontent means unquiet in mind through having one's desires unsatisfied. All right, what's the product of that? What's the product of discontentment? What's the product of not having one's desires satisfied? Envy, bitterness, anger, Wrath, malice, violence. And those are the very u- words that I would use to describe where we are as a society. It reminds me of Tolkien's Smeagol and his obsession with the ring and how his obsession led him to becoming what we know as Gollum, right? A shell of his former self. This, desi- this quest for power, this lust for power, this lust for the one ring that rules them all. We've seen how corrupting that misplaced desire was discontent, contentment. Both of those words, when we boil it down, it's all about what you desire. It's all about what you desire. What we desire animates the trajectory of our lives. What we desire animates the trajectory of our lives. I've spent a considerable amount of time studying Psalm 73, and I'd encourage you to read it. It's a psalm in which the writer is wrestling with all the injustice that he sees. And from his vantage point, from the vantage point of this psalmist named Asaph, the wicked prosper, things aren't as they're supposed to be, and he's tempted to despair. He's tempted actually to denounce God. And he says in verse 2, when he viewed the prosperity of the wicked, that his feet had almost stumbled, his steps had nearly slipped. And then he said it was because he was envious. He was envious And I won't read the whole psalm to you for the sake of time, but I'll read you the resolution, how he found his way out. 
Starting with verse 25, going to verse 28. He says this. This is how he's worked through all these things. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far off from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you, right? Resting in the justice of God. But for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell. This is evangelistic called that I may tell of all your works. Right? Asaph, the psalmist here, he had come to a place where he worked through all his lesser desires, including good, noble desires to see an end to injustice. He had to bring all of his lesser desires in subjection to one overarching desire. And that one overarching desire is the Lord God himself. Right? And he, he calls the Lord his heart and portion forever. He came to a place where there was nothing else on earth that he desired more than the Lord, and he finds comfort there. He finds comfort there. He finds contentment in his nearness to the Lord. He finds refuge in desiring God above all else. And that is the secret the Apostle Paul is talking about in that Philippians passage. That's the secret the Apostle Peter. That's, that is the secret to deep, abiding satisfaction, even in the midst of all the suffering. Paul and Peter's strength and contentment was found in Christ because their desire, above all, was to be in Christ and to have Christ in them. Paul counseled those members at Ephesus who were slaves to strain their gaze toward God and His Word. And while that may seem strange to us, it's the counsel of a God whose ways, by God's grace, thank God, whose ways are not our ways and whose thoughts are not our thoughts, Isaiah 55. I know we've all been praying for Ukraine. I have read of, of uh, churches gathering for worship on the Lord's Day with bombs going off in the background. I've watched Christians minister in the midst of, of suffering and grief. I've watched them sing, He will hold me fast, not knowing if they were going to make it through the night. And what we see there is a concern about God and His gospel. We see a concern about God and His gospel. We see, that mo- we see modeled for us gospel hope and what is the dark night of the soul for them. Right? In the midst of the hardest moments of their lives, what do we see Christians do? We see Christians have a, a, a concern about God. We see Christians have a concern about His glory. We see a Christ- Christians have a concern about his, God's image bearers, fellow image bearers, not self-preservation. We see Christian contentment, no matter the circumstance, spilling over the accounts. If you haven't read them, they're hard to read and the things are hard to watch. But what a testimony it is, what we see going on in Ukraine with the, with the local churches all over the place. And I, I mentioned that to give us an example, a modern-day example right now, of having eyes for Christ for making God and His gospel a priority in our lives no matter where we are. Right? Everything we've talked about this morning, injustice, perseverance and suffering, contentment no matter one station in life, it has to be viewed through a chief concern about the name of God and His doctrine. And that can only happen when we're grateful for all that God's done for us in Jesus. It can only happen when we come to a place in our lives when our overarching desire is Jesus Himself. Because it's Christ alone 
who's our sustainer in the midst of the suffering. It's Christ alone who's the undoing of all the bad stuff that we see. It's Christ alone who has brought peace and reconciliation, and we must trust in him and exalt him in our church and in the nations. A few takeaways for us this morning. The first is this. You can find these in your worship guide. Lament injustice. Right? A lot of the psalms are psalms of lament. We don't do that well as Christians, but lament is worship is unto the Lord. And so it is good and appropriate to lament injustice when we see injustice. Secondly, do not offer substitute saviors or anything that cultivates discontentment and envy as you work to do good in society. Offer Christ. He is sufficient. Three, repent of any thoughts sowed by you that makes you act or speak as if God owes you or anyone anything. God is, no, is a debtor to no man, Romans eleven, thirty-five. Four, in suffering, look to the suffering servant, Isaiah 53. Look to him for hope and press on. Five, contentment and joy. You know, everlasting happiness is the way that I like to sometimes define joy. Is impossible apart from Christ. All right? They are the byproducts of remembering how much you've been forgiven. Six, envy and discontentment, discontentment are the fruits of one who has been forgiven little. All right? And as God's church, God's church, we know that we've been forgiven much. Amen? Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? God, we thank you for time in your word, Lord. We thank you that your gospel has the power to transform all things, Lord, and even having this example propped up to us, God, that in a society in which 50% of the population were slaves, God, that there were members in the church of Ephesus that were considered brothers. And so we thank you that your gospel restores the image of God in individuals, Lord, and help us to, to minister in a way that represents that well and help us to offer Christ his person, his work, the gospel of peace in a society that so desperately needs it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the point.